Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really happy to have you here today for this episode. In this conversation, I'm joined by author and psychotherapist Nancy Van Dyken, who's written a wonderful book called Everyday Narcissism. And if you've been listening to the show, you know that, well, sometimes I speak about uh, seeing patterns of narcissism in my own psyche, in my own personality. And um, I feel like it's been a very, very helpful lens to me for helping create better boundaries, take better, take better care of myself, and, and be more uh, fluent with understanding my own emotional landscape. She says um, one of the things that Nancy organizes her book around are what she calls the five myths of everyday narcissism. And I want to be clear that when she uses the term, she's not using it as a clinical diagnosis for narcissistic personality disorder. The subtitle of her text is Everyday Narcissism, Yours, Mine, and Ours, meaning, in her view, we're all conditioned by these myths that I'm, I'm about to read, and that they essentially fragilize. They make ourselves very fragile. We're very um, delicate in terms of how others affect us, how we let others affect us. Um, so it's it's really helpful to look into these myths, and, and I would highly recommend her book. Her uh, The book... Everyday narcissism is one that I've recommended to family members, good friends, and everybody has come back with very positive feedback. Uh, even though the title, and I should say, when I recommend it, I say the title may put you off. You might not want to see yourself as narcissistic, but in opening to that dimension of ourselves, I think it can be an enormous um, opportunity for learning and growth. So these five myths, uh, because they shape the conversation I had with Nancy, they are one, that we're responsible for and have the power to control how other people feel and behave. So we have the ability and we're responsible for how, how other people behave. We have the ability to control, I should say. The second myth is that other people are responsible for and have the power for, to control the way we feel and behave. So this is just the inverse of the first. Other people are responsible for how we feel and behave. The third myth is sort of an evolute of the first two. The third says, the needs and wants of other people are more important than our own. Does this sound familiar at all? <laughs> the fourth, following the rules is also more important than addressing our own needs and feelings. And five, we are not lovable as we are. We can only become lovable through what we do and say. So as a, as a formula, these five myths really, uh, I think, do shape a tremendous amount of psychology in the world. And it's really with great pleasure that I, I, I share with you today my conversation with Nancy. Before I give it to you, if you enjoy this conversation, if you find any value in it, if you think someone else would find value in it, please uh, share this episode with a friend or a colleague or a family member. Um, sharing is caring. We really appreciate your shares. And if you're so motivated, we'd love it if you left a review or leave a comment about the, the episode on Spotify or Apple. Reviews are golden, and we, we really appreciate your reviews and sharing. So without further ado now, here's, to, here's today's episode, Everyday Narcissism with Nancy Van Dyken. Okay, today I am with Nancy Van Dyke. And Nancy, um, thank you so much for coming on my show today. It's great to meet you. 
Nice to meet you, Josh. So just before we started taping, you asked, how did I find your book? And and to introduce you, you I found you because you have written a book called Everyday Narcissism with a subtitle, Yours, Mine, and Ours. Yeah. And you asked how I found the book. I was reading um, Reshma Menekin's book, I believe is his oh, name, yeah. uh, uh, my, my grandmother's hands. Yeah. And he was speaking about something to do with narcissism and he cited your book. And up to that point, um, I guess I'd say for the last several years in particular, I've been looking at narcissism as a condition that I've come to realize I've been shaped by. Sure. And, uh, so in terms of the podcast, the podcast is called Everyday, Nar- Everyday Sublime, and your book is called Everyday Narcissism. And in the podcast, I, I'm trying to explore what I refer to as a sp- full-spectrum spirituality, the, mm-hmm. what, what goes on in the process of waking up, what comes with the process mm-hmm. of growing up, yeah. and what comes with the process of cleaning up. Nice. And early into my process of trying to wake up, I found myself uh, seeing a therapist and one of the first books he recommended to me was Alice Miller's The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm-hmm. And that was about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I forgot about it. Yep. More recently, um, you know, narcissism is getting more attention in mm-hmm. the popular media mm-hmm. and popular psychology. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking more and more about what's going on in that dynamic. And the more I started looking into it, I whatever I read, I had the the feeling, the disquieting feeling of seeing my own reflection come back to me more clearly. Sure. And I would even say, in conflict with my partner, um, I can see more clearly the dynamics of kind of the the narcissization of consciousness in my own being. And when I got to your book, uh, I felt like suddenly I had found one of the best descriptions for how narcissization, because I don't necessarily like the word like, narcissist. I don't think there are individuals who are so much narcissists as people who have been infected by the virus of this condition. Hmm. Just like there aren't cancerists, there's people who are struggling with cancer <laughs> in a way. And I found your description of the process for how this conditioning comes about to be extremely helpful. Good. And I've also found your essentially your prescriptions for how to grow out or grow through it, mm-hmm. it to be um, helpful to the point that I've worked with them so far. I, and I, you know, the, you have a lot of exercises in the book, and I haven't worked through all of them, but. I, you know, having done a lot of meditation practice and body practice and psychotherapy, I I really appreciate what you've put together, how you've put it together. And in the theme of this podcast, I would say in my own life, the thing that stands most directly between me and a flourishing life is this condition of Mm -hmm. narcissism. It it has created more suffering for me than Mm -hmm. anything else in my life. And the deeper I look into it, I agree with your subtitle. It's pervasive. And we'll talk about what kind of version of this is that is pervasive. Um, But I I really wanted to bring you on and express my gratitude to you for your book. The the phrase I've shared with people is, 
for the really for the first time, I started to feel like I was standing on stable ground, like dry ground, dry land, like after reading your book and and starting to put it into practice. So thank you. Um, That's my story of how I found you. How did you come to to write about this topic in the way you did? What what was going on for you? And whether you're seeing what were you seeing? What were you seeing in your own practice or your own life that 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 brought this to to be? Well, of course, um, I think I had a, a BS degree in, I'd say, everyday EN or codependency by the time I was 15 or 16. And uh, post-college, about a master's, and pretty soon I had a PhD. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's part of it's my own recovery process. Um I used to, for four years, maybe 20 years, I did a lot of work on codependency. I worked with a woman by the name of Sandra Smalley, whose definition of codependency um, I think is the best out there. And in the 80s, everybody was going to workshops, getting CEUs for uh, codependency, all of them. You know, I mean, they were. What was her definition, by the way? her definition of codependency is that it's uh, I haven't I haven't read said this for a long time. So it's a um, it's a pattern. It's a relationship pattern. Um, I, I got to write it out. Let's see. It's a relationship pattern uh, with an. Sorry, extra- Pardon me. Sorry to put you on the spot. I, no, I, I know okay. what that's like. Uh, with an external focus instead of an internal focus and a consequence of self-neglect. The reason I'm asking how, how she, she defined it, because um, I, could easily, I could easily imagine that your book could be titled something else. It could be titled something to do with codependency. It could be about well, emotional the- intelligence. but. That's what I wanted. Was curious well, about so that what definition. Happened, yeah, when I when I worked with her and I taught class three month classes on how to heal from that, and I'd studied with Smalley a number of times. She never she never really wrote up her stuff to any degree. Just a little pamphlet here, but her material was really good, and I've included quite a bit of it in my book. And uh, give her credit for that. Um, and uh, but her definition was the clearest. And then later when I studied with her, she said it was developed in a stressful environment. And we oftentimes think of growing up with alcoholism or abuse of some kind as a stressful environment. But I say the pattern of being good is stressful. Always trying to do the right thing, always trying to please everybody. So I'm teaching this class and I'm going out to new, uh, I'm going on a little speaking tour. And I was in New Jersey, and I was thinking, you know, when I think about um, codependency and all this impression management we're doing, that's pretty narcissistic. And then I started exploring, wow, narcissism is part of codependency. But I believe everyday narcissism is the foundation of what creates codependency. I I would not allow, I'm not any along because... You know, having thought about it and read your book, I would agree that codependency is an interpersonal relationship born out of 
the dynamic of narcissism in, 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 the, in the individual. Yeah, so part of her definition is that we have an internal focus instead of uh, an external focus instead of an internal focus with a consequence of self-neglect. And that, let, let's, because, and I think that, and that is in a way the, the foundational dynamic, would you agree, of what you're describing as everyday narcissism? There's an external focus, a neglect of the internal. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the third qualifier or the third component? External uh, focus, focus, internal neglect. No, no, it's an external focus instead of an internal focus, and the consequence is self neglect. Years later, she added, it's developed in the stressful environment. And because I was a minister's kid, always trying to be a good girl, you deny yourself, a good Christian girl, you deny yourself all the time, and that makes you a good Christian. Right. What I remember, uh, and I am not an, uh, an expert on myth or an expert in psychology, but what I remember from Alice Miller's treatment and maybe it was a conversation I had about her treatment, but in the myth of Narcissus, the bit I do remember is that Narcissus fell in love with his reflection in the mirror, um, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the pond. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway that I remember take, receiving from that was that th- there was an emptiness of self in Narcissus that, Narcissus that required a reflection back for him to feel a validity of, of being. And so it was the reflection and seeking reflection. When I started to see that, that's where I could see the performance of mm-hmm. a narcissistic personality mm-hmm. or the, or the, um, the, the, the seeming self-centeredness is, is really about getting a, a good reflection back from, from an audience, from an other, yes. mm-hmm. so that a fundamental emptiness of self inside is kind of covered over or masked temporarily well that comes from our desperation to belong our main drive in life freud freud said was sex and adler in about 1918 said you got it wrong siggy it's really about people want to belong they want to fit in they want to be liked and i think that's the driving force between everyday narcissism that hunger to belong to fit in to be loved be like and 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 I, if I think about that from a from a, just an evolutionary perspective, you know, there's there's good reason for those traits in our in our psyche uh, because that's what helped us function as a as small tribes mm-hmm. socialize. Yes. So, but you're describing that in the kind of the modern now that that external focus that uh, neglect of your own of 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 your own needs or your own Wants. Uh, so wants and self-understanding um, creates this dynamic of everyday narcissism. And I, I'm just trying to tease it out because a lot of times people feel that a narcissist is, you know, self-grand- self-aggrandizing, self-centered, um, just self-regarding and full of themselves, literally, when actually, at least in my experience of it, it's, a, it's an emptiness of self that creates this kind of performative dance to try to get good attention. And, and it's that dance that often gets people not so pleased with the behavior. In a way. Um, but it's, it's, I sometimes feel like the empty, the, the, the real profound emptiness inside um, of someone that's experiencing this uh is 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 not 
fully acknowledged and and i just wonder do you agree with that or well the the you, you have you have clinical narcissism which is not what i'm talking about we're not talking about um the diagnosis any we're not talking anything close to that um but you when you never get a chance to explore your wants and your needs and you're always focused on everybody else's one of the hardest things for many of my clients to do when we start working together is make a want list of, and that's in the first few chapters, um, of 15 things you want for you. Well, since it's so empty, since they have so learned to ignore and shut that down, it might take someone three months to get beyond three or five wants. It's really hard. I know what you want. Yep. I know what the kids want. I know what grandma wants. The neighbors want. Me? Jeez, never thought of that. Yeah. yeah, and that's I guess that's what I'm getting at. And and just to be clear, uh, I have not been no no professional has diagnosed me with clinical narcissism. No, it's, no, it's no, the, no, 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 no. But they, no. They, but it's it what you're describing that that inability to connect it, or to know who you are to have a have a strong sense of internal sense of self. <laughs> like I, when you were describing your BS in it and your MS and your PhD in it, I was reliving a profound sense of just wondering, why don't I feel like I'm a somebody? Why do I feel so empty inside? Why does it seem like everybody else has a clear sense mm -hmm. of personality? You know, this, um, and there was just that, that, that strong emptiness. So I know you get into this in the book, but I think it would be helpful for listeners to uh, hear you describe how do you see this developing in, in a in an individual because we're not born with narcissistic uh dynamics right. how well, do we these are. take shape when, when when we're little we don't care if you're tired get up and feed me you know that keeps us alive as infants uh -huh. you know but in terms of personality yeah so your question is how does that evolve is that what you're saying how does that how does that how does that condition into into, into a developing child or, a, or an adult how what are the what are the dynamics that that play into the the manifestation of of narcissism well i think i get your question um so if i'm not answering it let me know um <clears throat> I think parents are wanting to raise their children to be kind and empathetic and thinking of other people. And in doing that, um, um, they, they focus on, on does that make what, whatever they're doing, does that make somebody else feel bad? And it also emphasizes that you're responsible for if somebody else is, oh, you got to invite them or they'll feel bad. You better, um, you better include them or they'll feel bad. I think in my book, uh, there was a girl who got, um, it was actually me, <laughs> who got hurt by an uncle who ruined a, a, a Legos kind of thing. But, you know, the Legos in the 50s certainly didn't lock down like they do today. The version of them. And when my uncle came and swiped that whole thing off the table of, after I'd worked on it for hours and hours, I was confused. Um, but for many parents, they don't know how to deal with emotions. 
And so they don't want their kids to have it. They don't even know how to deal with their own emotions, let alone this little creature in front of them that they love so much. So in my case, um, my mom grew up in the Badlands, in poverty, and being tough was survival. So she might have said something if I went to Uncle Bill, blah, blah, blah. She might have said, oh, that's okay, Nancy, you can build another one. So in other words, I don't quite know what to do about this, and I don't want any conflict in the house, so uh, don't make a big deal out of it. And then when it's time to kiss them goodbye or hug them goodbye, and I don't want to do it, I'm told, well, you need to go give him a hug and kiss goodbye or he'll feel bad. Wow. I'm seven. I can mm-hmm. control how Uncle Bill feels by saying the right thing and doing the right thing. And because I was kind of feisty, I might have said, I don't want to. I'm mad at him. And mom would have insisted, because if I hadn't done it, she would have been embarrassed. Because we all hug and kiss hello and and goodbye. That's just what we did in our family. So now I have to take care of it so mom not embarrassed. So I have to go give him a hug and kiss goodbye. And then if I still stayed feisty, my dad would have gotten in the show. So then I'm seven, and I have to take care of my 45-year-old uncle. I have to take care of my 40-year-old mother and my 45-year-old dad. So you get that false sense of power and false sense of responsibility that really doesn't belong to you. Now, the goal is to teach kindness. Oh, go give him a hug, and he'll feel bad. But you see, nobody cared how I felt. Nobody cared what I needed because that's how they were raised. Not bad. They were wonderful parents in many, many ways. Um, so I learned that myth three, what I want, what I need, and how I feel just doesn't matter. I have to take care of all these other people. So the intention is honorable. There's no consciousness of not counting me. But that's what happened. So, so right. In that, de- in that example, you know, everybody's trying to get you to... Take manage their their emotions and take care of them right um and 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 your own emotional state is completely discounted even though a pretty upsetting thing it's like an adult i just i mean i have a niece who's seven and i can't imagine what would it be like if i were to go over to her with a lego set and just wipe it and destroy it completely i mean that's a cr- very violent and yeah probably very confusing yeah. um and so Many parents are unconscious of what they're doing. They think they're teaching empathy and kindness, and they're not. So what they could have said was, I I understand, Nancy, uh, that you're upset with Uncle Bill. However, you need to be respectful. So you don't have to hug him and kiss him goodbye, but you need to go up to him and say goodbye, Uncle Bill, because you need to be respectful, even when you're upset. Mm -hmm. Well, and see... I'm glad you used this example, and it sort of speaks to what I think of as a little bit of a maybe a confusing point for people, and I just where the the popular notion of a narcissist is someone who is self-centered, and they are, and, right? But but you're also saying 
the formation of narcissism is because you're con- you are conditioned to take care of others, to be other focused. So it's not yep. so much that you're self centered. So there's a well, you are. How, how do you circle the, connect this up for me because you know what I'm starting to try to point out. There can be seen like there's I two different things happening. Saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, you are self centered because you are taught you are the center of the universe and that you control how all these what goes on in the world. You control how other people feel. So you do have this false sense of being the center of the universe and that you have to take care of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is narcissism. But it comes from, it, 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 it is also a lack of having a sense of self. So it's that false sense, that false sense of power, that false sense of responsibility. Myth one, I have the power and the responsibility to control how everybody feels and behaves. I saw that happen to a a one-year-old who wanted Mm. to sit with her grandma at a big birthday party, and the parents were wanting to show her off, and she wanted to be with grandma. And even at one, the parents were, were shaming her. Oh, come on now, you can... You know, they didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't conscious. So there is this sense of, I am the center of the universe. I can control all these things. Um, okay, uh, about that is, sense of, so uh, just to but tease out that sense. There's a hollowness that goes with it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So there's a hollowness, but the, 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 the centeredness around, I'm in control or I'm in the center of it and I can control things. You call it a myth in the book. You have, I mean, you, you structure the book around five essential myths that have been internalized and yeah. uh, and and uh, function. But I I think part of the power of the book and the way you've constructed it is that these myths are not intuitive, in the sense that no, I would it's not fine. have if you if if you had asked me in a cold rational state. Do you have the power to control how someone else feels? I would say no, no way. But if I were to then analyze behavior with, say, my partner, particularly in conflict where I feel blamed and I try to explain why I don't think I deserve to be blamed, and, and you know, I can then I can start to see I'm trying to control how either I feel or or, or, or how, you know how she feels. And well, she's in um, myth too. It, when when somebody blames somebody, they're in myth too, which is, well, if I'm busy running around trying to make you happy, then by George, you're supposed to make me happy, and if you don't, I'm going to be really mad at you. And to be and to be clear on that point, I'm saying I feel blamed. She she denies that she is blaming me, and we talk about this a lot. And she, and I and she's helping me understand why she's not blaming me, but because of my conditioning, I'm fairly thin skinned. Some at in stress points or points of conflict. And I take things personally, and I, and this is what I wanted to speak with you about because I know you have a, a, some good chapters on this, particularly a chapter on shame, yeah. and oh, uh, and and the and what what the sh- what shame can, how shame the experience of shame f- factors into um, this condition. Well, of course, you learn you're worthless if how you feel, what you want, and and what you need. Myth three is in play then um uh of course your shame is that sense i love uh, my original definition that i learned about 
shame. I was so disconnected from that word. I had to go to a workshop to find out what it was. I had so learned to cover up my shame with anger or blame or self-righteousness or uh, drinking too much or whatever it might be. Um, but um, uh, yeah, shame gets triggered. And I'm telling you, those exercises in the book will heal your shame. They will mm -hmm. heal them. Um, so your question was, um, what was your question about? Sorry. Well, we're, 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 we're talking about, because this is this condition. I mean, when you say yours, mine, and ours, it's, it's mm -hmm. like you're, you're casting a wide blanket there and, um, not everybody is necessarily going to, let's put it this way. The, a lot of people I think would benefit from reading your book, but if reading the book is a is a is a admission of being somewhat narcissistic, I think that is, there's a barrier in some respects to, well, to that's people. What some people say, yeah, but, um, but go ahead. But, but what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get at with you, or have you have you speak to, is just the universality of how it comes about. What you're describing in terms of your relationship, the dynamics with your parents and your uncle, and the other examples yeah. in the book, you refer to this formation. Yeah. as a very hazy kind of trauma. It's not the, 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 the very acute, blunt trauma of physical abuse or sexual abuse or these specific discrete acts in time. The, the, the trauma that you're describing, the traumatization of the, of, the, of the psyche that you're describing seems to occur over many micro moments in a, in a kind Every of- Every time you don't count, it's a paper cut. Right. Every time you don't matter, it's a paper cut. And we've all had them, and they're painful. And so you get one paper cut after another, after another, after another. And that's what I call, and Resma uh, refers to in his book, hazy trauma, because you can't look at it and see it and name it. It's just this constant wearing down of self-esteem, self-worth. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's painful. Yeah. Right? But exactly. I, want, I want to say something about, you know, between couples. That if a person ever comes to you and says, you hurt my feelings, they're in myth too. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I, uh, you know, and, and. And just, and, because you keep mentioning the myths and I, I, I have them written on my index card as, uh, oh. as an exercise out of the book. Myth too is that other people are responsible for and have the power to control the way we feel and behave. Myth one is that we're responsible and have the power to control how other people feel and behave. Um, so those two are kind of the yin and yang of who's responsible for what feeling. <laughs> I'm only responsible. I'm responsible for all my feelings. So when people want to say, you made me feel, I'm very clear. Uh, I can't make you feel anything. If I could, do you know how much money I'd make? I'd just go bang and, oh, I'll, you're just a pile of joy now. Um, you I, know, and, well, maybe I, that, that. Go ahead. There's a. A question that has come up in a conversation I had with a friend who read the book around how how absolute is that that statement that that we can't we don't have an influence on how people feel. So, like for example, if I took it to the extreme and said I was like physically abusive, or if I was you know alcoholic and drinking all the time and um, uh, you know causing trauma on the on the domestic front. Mm -hmm. 
am I not responsible for how my partner feels if that was the dynamic? Sorry. So you, you have a hard line there. You say, and the answer well, is no. Well, you know, I had a, a wonderful man come in. He was a doctor. He had lost three jobs due to his temper. I mean, he he's a surgeon. He lost three jobs. And he came in. His wife started seeing me, and she was getting really strong. And so he wanted to come in and show me that he wasn't a bad guy, I'm quite sure. And I really liked the guy. I worked with him uh, as a couple for a while, but for months. But I really liked him. But he's sobbing and crying and recognizing that he's been a jerk. And, and I said, yeah, you're right. You've been a jerk, and, and you get 50% of the problem. No, 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 no. I get at least 80%. I did this and this and this. And I wouldn't even let her have a credit card for nine years and blah, blah, blah. Finally, the third time he said it, you might have to bleep me. I said, you're absolutely right. You've been a real asshole. You've been a jerk. You've been mean. You've been cruel. You've been unkind. You've been disrespectful. No question about it. That's your 50%. Her 50% is she put up with it. Hmm. I refuse to see people as victims, but we live in a culture, and every client of mine, just about every client of mine, gets my lecture on victimhood. And I'm glad you're bringing we, this up. Because we have a lot of permission in our culture, and as long as you're in victim, you're in powerlessness. And I refuse to see any of my clients as powerless. I just refuse. I just refuse. I, I glanced at that chapter uh, for a second time this morning on victimhood, uh, you make it clear that people are victimized. There are conditions. And do you want to speak to that? Like what are, where, what is, there's, there is the, the, the state of being victimized by an atrocity or the, the harm from somebody. What's the relationship between, you know, experiencing victimization and the development of victim victimhood or victim psychology? And which is what you're describing as, 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 as problem. Well, I think people get wedded to victim because they want to blame and they don't want to take responsibility. It's always somebody else. My life is always in the hands of somebody else. And if I'm not happy, it's somebody else's responsibility, somebody else's fault. And um, I will always challenge my clients, <laughs> you know, um, um, I always laugh because I'm real direct with clients and, and I believe in them. I believe in my clients. And um, uh, um, victimhood is a choice. If you don't like what, where you're at. Uh, recently, I've been saying to, to couples, I said, okay, now you can fight. You can keep fighting for another 30 years if you want. That's okay. That's your choice. Or you can change what you're doing and take more responsibility for your own happiness. I always say in coupledom, you're responsible for the meat and potatoes of your happiness. And your partner's just dessert. And so don't hold somebody else accountable for your unhappiness. That's your job. But, you know, we grew up with music and movies and every, you know, everybody's going to make us blissfully happily happy. And I say, no, 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 no. Your partner's either dessert or fine wine that might go with it, but you're responsible for your happiness. And when people take on that responsibility, the dynamics in the relationship, whether it's at work or with other family members or in their partnership or with their children, the dynamics change radically, radically. Because when you're in victim, you're in poor me, ain't it awful? Look at how you're treating me. <laughs> and I refuse to feel sorry for anybody. I honor them too much. 
That's very interesting. It, the, I mean, I, 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 and I can attest to what you're describing because, you know, just, just reading the book again, like it brought me on to a, a level of stability where I could just catch when I was trying to take, when I felt response, when I, once I started, uh, reviewing these these core myths that that play into narcissism mm -hmm. that you identify i could start to see how and where i was catching myself feeling responsible for saying how my partner feels or feeling responsible for how my mother or father feels still or and and how difficult it was but I, first off i became aware again the reflection from your book how chronically passive i've been in my life in so many situations so there's, mm. a, there's that, that this pattern mm. of chronic passivity mm -hmm. and, and, and you've done well then, Josh, you've done well, <laughs> because I say to my clients who I find a pattern of passivity, I just say your prognosis is poor because you like being a leaf in the river and letting everybody else just kind of with therapy with me, you get a canoe, you get a paddle and we go through the rapids, but passive people oftentimes don't change. They don't want to do the work, which is okay. But that you're making these changes and you have a history of passivity. Congratulations. That's a feat. Yeah. Well, maybe passivity and, and, and conflict avoidance. You know, if I, I mean, this Dang. is just me. I can look back now in my life now and say, okay, the major decisions I've made, it's like, was it, was I going for something or was I avoiding something? And, yep. and I can definitely say there was the side of avoidance in many cases. Um, but the, What's, what's interesting to me as a meditator, uh, a mindfulness meditator, was how you, I would say, center the importance of emotional intelligence in the, 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 the path forward. And, and you have some exercises. I'd be interested to hear you talk about them. But talk to me about the importance of just being able to name Oh, and identify feelings as a as a necessary foundational step for growing out of this dynamic. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. <clears throat> so, um, you know, when we're raising children, we say, and they're little, we say, "This is a phone. <laughs> this is a Kleenex. You know, this is this is lipstick," and we're very clear about that. But we don't teach children how to name feelings. Um, my daughter is incredibly bright, and I say she learned six years of Chinese in three months. That's pretty bright, and there's other accomplishments. But she was sitting on the floor at two, already talking at two, and she was trying to pound a round wooden peg into a round wooden hole with a wooden hammer. Now, if you know anything about wood and you know anything about a hammer that's made out of wood, this is a useless exercise. It's absolutely a useless exercise. And she's trying to pound this thing. This hammer weighs maybe four ounces, and she's trying to pound. And there's no, there's no soap on the pegs. There's nothing. She's, and all of a sudden, she pounds her fist beside herself, and she says, Ugh. And I looked at her as I walked by, and I said, Boy, you must be really frustrated. She looked at me with these great big eyes. Why she took that toy out again a week later, I don't know, but she did, and she's trying it again. And she turns to me at one point in time, and she says, I am so frustrated. So now she has a word 
it's a word I tell people not to use anymore, but she had a word um, to name her experience. So we don't teach children how to name their experience um, because most parents don't even have an have a, a, an emotional vocabulary. And that's why every one of my clients has a feeling list. When I talk to them, they have it on hand in the therapy session. Because if I don't know what a feeling is, a lot of people don't know what they're feeling. They don't know how to name it. So they like to say frustrated. And I say, well, frustrated is a word you can't use in therapy with me anymore because that's like telling the doctor you're sick. It says nothing. So you go to a doctor and say, I'm sick. And the doctor says, well, we better get you on some albuterol and let's get you also on some flagell and uh, Cipro. No, the doctor wants to know the details. Well, have you been throwing up? Do you have diarrhea? Have you got a temperature? Blah, blah, blah. So to say you're frustrated, frustrated tells you and anybody else nothing. But if you go under the feelings of anger, ang frustrated is an angry feeling. For someone like you, being able to say you're angry might be progress if you're conflict avoidant. For a lot of my clients, I don't want them to use the angry words because they use it instead of saying, I feel powerless, I feel stuck, I feel unimportant, I feel discounted, I feel hurt. The D words are always very helpful. Discourage. Um, uh, so if I know that I'm feeling unimportant, then the homework is what can I do to feel important? If I'm feeling discouraged, what can I do to feel external? So if you don't know what you're feeling, you can't take care of it. So it's core, but people have to be very careful. We like anger. <laughs> Some of my clients are really good at it, and they go, no, no, no. <laughs> or they'll say, I feel like, and like isn't a feeling. So I say, no, 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 you're going to give me a thought. Get out the feeling sheet. Same with uh, people will say, I feel that. And I go, no, 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 that isn't a feeling. Get the feeling sheet out. So we say, I feel a lot, but we don't use any feeling words. This is something I definitely wanted to capture in the conversation with you. Um, so I want to hold that thought for a second, though. I feel like or I feel that. I want to come back to that. Plant a flag there. And I just want to reflect what you're saying around uh, this feeling sheet, this feeling exercise that you have um, in terms of becoming more fluent or have a, a broader vocabulary that's more accurate to tracking emotional states within your exercise. If I recall it correctly is to once a night, once a day, usually at the end of the day, read through all the emotions on these sheets that you have. And they're about three or four pages. And I, and I did it last night and it takes about four to five minutes to read through all of them. It's, a, it's an extensive list. So when you say, Nancy, when you say, I give my patients a canoe, a paddle, and we hit the rapids, this is not a light, this is not a, 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 an exercise for the faint of heart. This, is, this, this requires a kind of stamina and grit to get through, I think, but it's, I, I do see it as invaluable. So there's this exhaustive category, categorical list of emotional states that you have. You're meant to read through it and then sit quietly for a few minutes after having read through it, reflect on one's day and keep a journal. Don't, Am I getting oh, it right? Oh, I don't like journals, notebooks. Oh. Um, but I say, don't analyze the feelings, just name them. 
Yeah, yeah. Because just that then you go right to your head instead of staying connected to your heart. Yeah, that's all I was going to say. A journal notebook, just to write down all the feelings that you encountered that day in just one word, a one word list. Um, so it's a, it's a feeling in or emotional inventory for the day. And that's meant to be done repeatedly. And sometimes and, and, if, if there, if people are struggling in their relationship, what did it feel like to be married to this person? What did it feel like to go to work today? What did it feel like to talk? Wherever the problem is, is where a piece of where you really want to focus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause then you have to yeah, take care of those feelings. Right. And I guess the reason why this section kind of leapt out at me with in neon letters was the, this part that we just flagged too, which is that when someone speaks and they say, I feel that even though they're using the word feel what they're speaking about, I feel that this situation isn't so good, or I feel that you could have been more considerate, or I feel that even though the word <laughs> feeling is being co-opted, it's actually, as you very poignantly say, describing an opinion or a thought. It's a thought. And that was like a, a major light bulb that went off because oh. that's what I started hearing in dialogue, yes. in communication. I started yes. hearing, oh, someone's, we're, we're supposed to be talking about our feelings and doing the U-turn and, and looking at what's going on within ourselves and not projecting out or blaming the other person. But I could see both on both sides of the aisle, a lot of I feel that's were occurring and in, and it wasn't going anywhere. Never does. Because now you have, I, I say this kindly, you have intellectual masturbation going on. Absolutely. People just like to pontificate and blame. And I'm not, I'm not making them wrong, but the ability to effectively communicate and understand oneself is a very small portion of the population. The consciousness wheel suggests 70% of the po- only 30% of the population moves into the third quadrant, which is to give up all the old rules and all the old myths and all the old expectations and the shame. And that, that third quadrant, it's lonely because only you can do your own self-exploration. And only, they say, only 30% of the population does it. And, and, I, and I oftentimes say to my clients, therapy with me is hard work. It's not for sissies. But if you do the work in about six months, your life will be extremely different. That's just the way mm-hmm. it is. What, what was the, I didn't, I missed the third quadrant. What was the quadrant? There's four to? quadrants in this consciousness wheel. And the third one um, is where people decide to move out of this strict rules and the rigidity and the shame and the, and um, it, it's another whole kind of lecture, but that move into the quadrant of self-exploration. They move from rules into empathy. They move into, well, that's what they want me to think. What do I think? What do I believe? Uh, this is what they taught me. But, And I think that's, for instance, the difference between being religious and being spiritual. Uh, religion, for me, I believe, is more like a coat I put on. Someone tells me to believe this and to do this and do it so many times a day or whatever. And uh, those, that's what you do. That's what you believe. That's what you think. And for a lot of people, that's easy to have someone tell you what you think about stuff. But the third quadrant is, well, that's what they taught me. But what do I believe about that? What do I think about that? And um, that's when it turns into spirituality. 
because now it comes from the inside, not the outside of a coat I'm supposed to wear. My dad was a very liberal minister, studied under Paul Tillich at uh, Union Theological, and he'd be considered radical today. So, of course, I loved it. And um, But he said, uh, always find a church uh, that allows you and encourages you to question. And if they don't, then get out of there. <laughs> and I think that's true. Yeah, no, so, I, can, I can see that. Yeah. So, yes, knowing who I am is knowing how I feel. It's paying attention to my body because the body is incredibly wise. And if you learn to listen to it, um, it will tell you what's missing, what's going on. And then you have to learn the skills. And that's part of what I do is give people the skills on what do you do when you feel discouraged or discounted or unimportant or worthless? What are some of the things that you can do about your shame? if you're feeling shameful. And so that's a lot of the work I do with my clients is how do we take care of these feelings in these dynamics? But you got to know what and, and so, so play it out. What, what is the general move after identif- feeling identification and just no longer look like blaming the outside experience for the feeling, but just owning it from within? What, what's the next step forward into moving beyond this? Well, I think, first of all, you have to own that they're your feelings coming from your wounds. Somebody says something to you and you're hurt. They didn't hurt you. They bumped into a wound. And you're responsible to heal that wound. Um, and I always say honesty with kindness and graciousness, you know, when you're, when you're walking into things. Um, let me just segue here for a second. I rarely get hurt anymore. Rarely. Why? Because I know that I know I'm not responsible. I'm not arrogant enough to think that I can make you feel anything. I I understand that. Um, Do I think I always do it as kindly or graciously as I could do things? No. But I'm very clear that it's your wound. It's your journey. And I can't do your journey for you. I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, the phrase, I'm not saying I espouse, I'm, the phrase just flashed in my head, victim blaming. I'm not saying that what you're saying just sounds like victim blaming. I can imagine someone saying what you're saying is a form of victim blaming. It's, it's, it, and, and this may be the problem with the way victimhood itself is sort of pervaded in some sense through the culture too. Um, but I mean, I guess I'm still a little bit hung up on the I'm not responsible for how someone else feels part, um, particularly if a behavior. I know you said, you know, the other person or the, but there are situations where, the, the, you know, uh, through no fault of their own, somebody was hit by the side. Like, say, say I was walking out in the street and uh, someone texting had was driving by and they happened to swipe me and I was lucky enough to survive the hit. But I my leg was broken and. And I would feel like, yeah, I was a victim to the circumstance. Granted, I know I still, for my, <laughs> but I would okay. feel. So I'm driving down Highway 100 in, in the Twin Cities. And I love Highway 100. It was the most convenient highway for me, for work, for my daughter's school, everything. And I got rear-ended. I had a small, one of the early small Lexus SUVs. 
And I got rear-ended by a large other kind of SU. Some of them are really big, you know. This one's like a house inside. And uh, it really smashed into me pretty good. And I went to the emergency room to uh, see if I had any neck anything. And I did go to chiropractor and so forth for a long time, but I was okay. And people people say, well, you're a victim there. I said, no, I'm not. Because victims don't have a choice. And that Viktor Frankl, the man who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, decides not to be a victim in Auschwitz. Really, Nancy? Is there anything that can happen to you in Minnesota here? Really? Really? He, he chose to keep his little Rosh Hashanahs and his Seders and his Yom Kippurs and his Passover. He did all those things, maybe with just a crumb of bread. It had a tremendous impact. The guards came to him for marital advice. You can't be evil all day and then go home and have a good married life. It's just not going to happen. But why, don't, why didn't I feel like a victim of him? Because I chose to drive on Highway 100, and this is what I know about Highway 100. I've seen people reading the newspaper while driving. I've seen them eating. I've seen women putting mascara on. Um, I've seen men and women reaching to light their cigarettes or uh, drive uh, 10 miles over the speed. And I choose to take Highway 100 to work. I could make a different choice. I could take side roads. I could move closer to my office. I make a choice to drive on Highway 100 knowing full well there's crazies on that highway and every highway. And I take full responsibility for that choice. Full responsibility for that choice. So no. And it sounds like you, you took full responsibility for whatever recovery was necessary or whatever rehabilitation if you needed oh, it. Oh, sure. Sure. We avoid... We avoid taking responsibility for our lives when we go into victim. Now, are there victims in Ukraine? Of course. Are there victims in, um, uh, where was that flooding uh, that the whole, the whole city went into the in ocean? Libya. In Libya. Um, of course there are victims. Yeah, the fires, you know. And, that, and yet sometimes I think about those people out in California. Well, if you're going to build a, a house and rebuild a house and rebuild a house on, on a cliff that keeps collapsing, I don't see you as a victim. You're just making a bad choice. Sorry. I'm really no, firm I, on this. Uh, no, I'm, real, I'm really into people having understanding. There's, a, there's some things you can't control. You can't control Washington. Sorry. It's not possible. <laughs> but um, well, right, and and I, I guess it, in some ways it, and this is what I, I, you know, from what I read, what I liked about your book was that it was, there was like it was a form of practical stoicism in a way of becoming clear and clear about the things you can control and the things you can't control, and and, and that being clear and clear about where just reflecting on the dichotomy of control, like what mm -hmm. what 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 is within my 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 jurisdiction, yep. what's not. Um, and, and so that's where I feel, you know, I'm more Buddhist in my own background and perspective, but, you know, I the four noble, but and your book could be a treatise on a practical treatise on a kind of dukkha, suffering, what the Buddha called dukkha, this discontent, this, this sense of 
of, of suffering or, or dissatisfaction that comes from certain f- kinds of clinging. And you're describing the views, the myths that people cling to that, that generate suffering. And you're giving a prescription or in a path of practice and self-exploration and work that helps one grow through it. And then I, and you I, probably listened to Pema Chodron's uh, CD on getting unstuck. Have you ever listened to her? It's been a while, but yes, I did hear that. Yeah, that's wonderful example of that. Yeah. And I saw that. I mean, you had Pema Chodron, Chodron's book that you just mentioned, uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, Power of Now. You had uh, the Alice Miller, a few other books referenced in the back. Mm-hmm. Further reading for for mm-hmm. support, mm-hmm. but um, in terms of this. Tracking feelings, taking responsible for feelings. Uh, I think that was in the chapter around setting good boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that... Please or boundary have no pe- boundaries. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> pleasers have no boundaries. Yes. And, and, then and, pleasers, the and the reasons why pleasers have no boundaries is they have an almost impossible ability to say the word no. I know. That's a homework sometimes. I'd like you to say, here, here, here's the phrase. I'd like you to say, uh, no, that won't work for me. That's just a standard. No, that won't work for me. Yeah, but you're so good at it. Uh, yeah, I am. And no, that won't work for me. Usually if you say it three times, they stop. When you get really close to somebody, you stop and you trust the relation. You sit, You just say, no, nah, I don't want to. <laughs> but that requires a lot. No, nah, I don't want to go there. That's yes, the kind of friends uh, look, I have. <laughs> uh, no, I can imagine. <laughs> I I just want to share. I, 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 this is something I've been working on, um, you know, just when and how I can schedule things, when and how I can see people uh, based on where I'm living now. And, and mm-hmm. it is incredibly uncomfortable to when someone requests to get together, when someone says, come visit me or can I come visit you? And, to say I can't do it now or not to say, can't. No. I mean, I, you can't use the word can't <laughs> can't implies <laughs> powerlessness. See, can't implies powerless. Um, I can't do it. I can't take this anymore. I, I baloney. You probably can. You just don't want to. It's okay to not want to. Well, see, that's so the, what I see, would say uh, to you. What I say to my clients is, well, put your big boy pants on and say it anyway. I'll put my big boy pants on and try. So do you mind if I just try to process this with you a little bit to, as sure. an example? Yeah. Um, it because, it, right, I just had to do this with somebody, a, a good friend who I really do love his company. Um, he wanted to come visit. And, and he was just going to drive up to where I live in Maine. And he, and I said, no, at first I said, I'm, and, but I used the caveat. I'm overwhelmed with work right now. And I gave him, you know, two tweets of excuses that wasn't, I was trying to take care of him and say, it's not about you. It's about my overwhelm and my stuff with work. I want to interrupt um, you for one second. Just one second. Please. So when you make excuses, you give your power away. You're being the little boy who wants daddy's approval. And so, and so it's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, this wasn't kind of me, but I wasn't in my body when I was 20 years old. 
this guy asked me out and I really liked him as a friend, but he wanted to go out on a date. And I said, no, I have to go look for wedding dresses with my sister. So he said, okay. And he called me back and asked me for another date. And I made another excuse. And he said, well, if you don't want to go out with me, why don't you just tell me? Right. That would have been more respectful. Um, but if you make excuses, then they can always come up. Well, I won't be a problem. You won't have to do, you won't even know I'm there. I just want to be in your presence. Well, no, that's not going to work because it never works to make excuses. And people want to, um, I work, I have specialized in working with people in abusive dynamics. And they're always trying to make excuses and justification because if they can justify it, then he won't get mad or she won't get mad. And I said, then you're seeking daddy's approval or mommy's approval. All you have to say is, you know, it's just not going to work for me. Because you're an adult and you know whether it works for you or not. Well, then put your big boy pants on and say, no, you know, that's just not going to work for me, Fred. And they'll quit harboring you. They'll, they'll quit. Well, usually after three times they give up. <laughs> I don't know why it's three. Okay, so I know I'm going to be the bad, you know, the... The, the stubborn client here. Please do. The ad hoc I client. Love yeah, I do. I like it. Uh, you know, so how do I say that? Like, no, that's not going to work for me without um, communicating that I don't care about the friendship. So you add the connecting piece. So if you don't want the friendship, you just say, no, that won't work for me. And that that's a barrier. But if you want the friendship, it's like I called my friend and I said, so Jacqueline, we're going to a movie today. Do you want to go see movie A? No, nope, don't want to see it. have no intention of never seeing it. I don't want to see it. However, I do want to see a movie with you. That was the connecting piece. So the boundary is no. And the connecting piece is I'd like to find a time in November. I'd like to find a time in January. So you add the connecting piece, which says you still matter to me. Okay. That's the, that, that's the, that's like, maybe that's the, the velvet part of the glove of the iron fist and the no. <laughs> well, because what you're saying when you do that is you do matter to me and I do like seeing you. I just don't want to do it now. I don't even want to schedule now. I'm overwhelmed. Don't tell them you're overwhelmed because then you're seeking permission to say no. You don't need to seek permission to say no. You're obviously a very competent and capable man. You don't need permission. Mm-hmm. But that really is, I mean, and I thought about that. I mean, I, I, I had an older friend when I was younger. And when we talk about this sort of thing, how to put, how to let someone down without hurting their feelings, he'd always say, don't over-explain. Over-explaining is, is, is the danger. And you're, you're sort of giving me a version of that. You don't over-explain. Don't give your excuses. Don't explain they why. They might be hurt, but so what? That's how they interpret your no. That's how they decide to filter. We all have filters from our childhood, I believe, from our past lives, from our past experiences. We all have these filters. So if someone says no to me, it used to hurt me. And um, now, you know, um, I have a relative who I've really tried to train. I'm okay with no. I'm okay with no, I don't want to. And it's taken years. And this relative came over to bring me a little gift. And, and sometimes we go on rides together. And, and we just spend the afternoon going through the countryside like you did in Fergus Falls in the farm days, you know. And um, we have a wonderful time. 
And sometimes we run errands together. And so I said, so what are you doing? And uh, she said, well, um, I'm just going to go run some errands. I said, oh, do you want some company? And she said, no, no, I just want to do it alone. I jumped for joy. I jumped for joy when this person said, no, I just want to go do this on my own. Because she trusted the relationship enough that I can handle no. I'm a big girl. I can handle no. And trusted that I won't be offended. I won't get hurt by that. I get it. Sometimes you want to do your errands and be done. And sometimes it's just kind of nice to meander with other people. But I don't take it personally. You know, everyone decides how to handle, let me just do this quickly. Everyone decides how to handle things. And uh, when I'm working with people in abusive dynamics, they will say, yeah, but if I'd had dinner on the table on time, he wouldn't have gotten mad. If I hadn't spent so much money on groceries, she wouldn't have gotten so upset and, um, and been critical or raised her voice or whatever. And I said, you know, my father made a decision sometime in his life that he doesn't get angry like that. He just wouldn't do it. Um, in 38 years, he died when I was 38. In the 38 years, he raised his voice to me once. He had just told me how to be safe using the table saw. And one of the first things you do is you make sure it's unplugged from the wall. Well, this little 10-year-old saw these chrome dials that were shiny, and I couldn't wait to get in there and screw them. And I didn't know I was screwing the blade up or, you know. And he said, Nancy, now the guy was six foot two, big booming voice. Uh, it's the only time he raised his voice. I ever heard him raise his voice. And it was around hmm. safety. And then other people decide that it's okay to yell and scream and call names and swear. Um, so we all decide how we're going to handle whatever comes before us. We're not responsible for how other people handle things. They make that decision. They make that decision. Don't take responsibility for their journey. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It it does make sense, and I and I, you know, it's somewhere in your book you say it's, sometimes this is easier said than done, and, oh, yeah. and I'm, which is you know, and, and I'm all I want to do is just speak to my own experience with trying to uncouple from these myths and, and establish yeah. new, new, new patterns. And, and I, I do feel like your, your book is an incredibly helpful roadmap and, and, and practice path for um, uncoupling these things. I know we're close to our time. I, and do, I, I do want to say one thing. Please. As I say to my clients, I'm as, I'm a, I'm very opinionated. And I know I'm not God. And you get to disagree with me all you want. You get to tell me you don't like it. You get to say that's helpful and you, you say that's crazy. I don't care. Um, but I know I'm not God, but you're going to know exactly how I feel and what I think and we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that you're just seeing that side of me. That's all. <laughs> no, but you, it, I mean, it, it's also by knowing if you if you clearly model how you're feeling and you're able to talk about it and not you know i feel that kind of thing if you're not getting to that kind of dynamic of i feel that and giving your opinions i mean you're you can be opinionated but you're you're it sounds like you you're you're conscious and transparent around how you're feeling and um modeling so that your patients can also do the same thing well the other thing is is if you give me more information i might change my opinion mm -hmm. So as new information comes in, 
during the Vietnam War, I was mad at all my 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 peers going to war because I come from such a pacifist family, and um, and I was mad about it. I was protesting. I was doing all that stuff we did in the '60s for all the upheaval that was going on, and um, about. 15, 20 years later, a kid I grew up with, the Harthens and the Van Dykens, um, you know, those two families grew up together. And I asked Freddie, I said, Freddie, why did you go to war? Because he was raised in our church and blah, blah, blah. And he said, I thought it was my patriotic duty. And all my anger at my peers went away. They thought it was their patriotic duty. And then he said, in the first day I was there, we shelled uh, a site uh, full of Viet Cong and ammunition. And then when we went on reconnaissance, we realized we shelled a bunch of old people and women and children. And all I could see was your father in the pulpit saying, thou shalt not kill. So the minute he said, I thought it was my patriotic duty, I got out of all my self-righteous indignation and started apologizing to my colleagues, my my peers, for my arrogance at that time and the harm that I had caused. And that's a uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a very dramatic example, um, but it's part of the another process that I think you speak to nicely in the book, which is that in growing up, in a certain sense, in growing up, you will make mistakes. You can't do this perfectly, and no. part of making mistakes is learning how to atone and apologize. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been, you know, I haven't been able to get to everybody, but I have been trying to atone for conflicts and maybe schisms in relationships that I know that I have caused through my my standard tactic, which is silencing. I'll just if mm-hmm. I get to if it gets too conflictual, I pull away and disappear, can disappear and vanish. Um, and 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 realizing that the harm of that kind of silence causes um, I've I'd taken responsibility for that and try, or I'd begun to try to do that and, 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 and apologize. And I think so. So you have to that, that changing yourself opinion for is, not knowing if you had known how to be, if you'd been taught how to deal with conflict, you would have done it differently. Mm-hmm. So now the journey is, well, when that comes up, a lot of my clients, once they're a client of mine, they can text me any time of the day because I'm trying to teach them new ways of doing things. And their amygdala, click, their amygdala clicks in and goes, I don't know how to do that. What do I do, Nancy? How do I respond to that? So, of course, I've got an opinion on it. Yeah. Uh, because lots of times it's just we just don't know what to say. And so I'm always helping people with words and phrases on how do you handle that. Yep. As we come to the, the, our time here, I I just want to run something by you um, and, and see what your what your thoughts are on this. One way of describing narcissism, what um, or one quality that I would associate with with it is f- frag- fragility, uh, a, a fragile character, someone who is, and I speak about myself here like this, um, sort of thin skinned, uh, con- conflict avoidant, uh, kind of easily triggered to feeling shame, very fragile personality. Mm-hmm. Um, I perceive an in, I mean, an increase in the fragilization of 
our, our, our common humanity in a way. I mean, people seem to be becoming increasingly fragile. You see it with, I see it with the spikes in anxiety and depression oh, yeah. um, in the younger generation. It seems very much causally tied to the rise of smartphones, screens, and social media mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And um, it, for that reason, it, 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 it does feel to me like you're, the work you're pointing to in, in, in your book is, I want to say, almost required medicine for nearly everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I know you wrote some, the book. And you, some people are, are quiet and some people are aggressive in that fragility. I was talking after my book came out, I was talking to a radio host in Manila about the myths in the book. And he says, oh, for crying out loud, Nancy, I think this is everywhere. It's all over Manila. We got it going here. I bet it's all over the world. I said, I think so. <laughs> what do I, I you know, that, yeah, I, I mean, I had in the back of my mind, a, a conversation I had with a, a friend from Italy uh, was saying that they, she felt that there were some cultural differences where, you know, the, the, in the families in Italy, like in Sicily, they were raised and, there was more, um, you know, it wasn't so much that you felt responsible for how someone else feels. It's just that, you know, that being a, a, a kind member of the family, a generous member of the family did make other people feel better and vice versa. And she felt like your, your first two myths were too harsh for, or too culturally context dependent in a way. Um, Say that again. What did she say to you? Because I'm going to dispute she, it. But what did she I, say I, to you? I want, well, I'm, I want, I'm not sure how closely I'm replicating That's what right. she said, but right. it was something like um, that these myths are very, she sees these, she lives in the United States and she sees the myths in American culture very clearly, but in her more uh, old world Sicilian culture, uh, she, she found that, um, it wasn't so much that people felt responsible for how each other people they, they felt, but they, they took pleasure in being culturally generous because it other, it did make other people feel better. You know, whether that's, it's like bringing, bringing some a, a soup or a bread to a neighbor or. That's just kindness, um, but it's a motivation for doing it. And right. I have worked with people in Germany. I've worked with people in Australia. I've worked with people in, um, Spain, I've worked with people in England, they all got the same thing going. But what I would say, it's a motivation if you do it because you care about something. See, true caring always includes self. How does it impact me? Am I being sacrificial here? Oh, then you're going to be a martyr. And kind isn't, uh, doesn't always sound nice. So don't get that confused. Mm-hmm. So my, I used to make my daughter brush her teeth. You're so mean. I can't believe you make me brush my teeth and I'm so tired and I just want to go to bed. Or I don't, my granddaughter now says, I don't want to brush my teeth because it makes my breakfast taste funny. I said, that's okay. Go up and brush them anyway because you forget. And she always does forget if I don't make her. And then at 15, my daughter said to me, thank you for making me brush my teeth, my mom. And I think that's because she had a friend who had terrible teeth. And so kind. You know, when my friend said to me, um, I do want to go to a movie, I sure don't want to see that one. See, that was kind. I don't want to second guess 
that I'm in. Are you know, are you sure we, we don't have to go to this restaurant? We could go to another restaurant if you if you don't want to go to this one. You don't want to go to this movie. We can always go. I don't want to play that game. I have people in my life who will tell me and will respect me enough that I can hear the truth. She didn't, she didn't, you know, she she didn't look at my sweater and go, oh, puke, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Blech, I can't. You know, she just said, no, that's not my favorite color on you. Mm-hmm. You can still be kind and gracious, but remember, to not speak your truth, I think, is unkind. I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me. I don't want anybody feeling like they have to do something for me. I want to know when somebody does something for me that it's genuine and not because they feel obligated or like they should. I want to be able to trust that communication. Um, And I imagine you feel when the communication's aligned coming from kindness versus a performative desire to not hurt your feelings. That really diminishes me Mm -hmm. and my ability to handle a no. (laughs) Yeah. I, you know, I know we're, we are close to our end and I just want to say, Nancy, thank you so much for the book. Thank you so much for your time coming on the show. Um, I, I, I really, again, I've said it a few different ways, but it, this is a, it's a, it's a very interesting look at, you know, how to, I, I think, grow up and clean up. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And if you ever want to have another discussion, I'd love to do it because I love the challenges of, of uh, are you sure about that? I'm not sure that's right. But if it was helpful, I'm really glad. Uh, you know, if the book helps one person, person, then it's worth the effort. So thank you for sharing that, Josh. And you're a delight. You're just a delight. So uh, this has yeah. been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, I, will, I will reach out to have you back. I will have oh, you back. What, okay. What I, I mean, if you, if you're, if you're open, I love having return guests because it, you know, we've already established, get a rapport now and the next one yeah. is probably going to be more freewheeling and more relaxed. Yeah. Um, but my prom, my, my public statement will be, I am, I'm, I am specifically going to look at the chapter on shame and put that into practice before I see you. It works. Next. It works. I did that for 10 years and I virtually rarely ever get shame anymore. And I was so full of it. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that you're saying that, um, and what I reread recently, um, is motivating me around that. And I, and Good. I, and it is, it's, 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 you know, I, I woke up to realizing I have a lot of that in me and it gets triggered very, very easily. Um, and my somatic practices. One, one quick example the man I was working with, lots of problems in the marriage. Oh, he had a PhD. I told him at one point in time, I said, you know, I have quite a few people in victim, but you're going to get the crown. You are really good at pouring me in it awful. And it's just not helping you. I said that to, I said that to a lawyer the other day. And I said, you're really good at this. So just knock it off. We got to get on and take care of business. I need the adult in the session. And he said, okay, okay. But anyway, um, uh, you know, something I didn't say, I just want to say this. Um, yeah. My dad was probably the, my, my, both my parents were conditioned by narcissism too. Sure, of um, course they uh, were. And yeah. I had, I was more, the, my relationship with my, my, my dad was the most fr- uh, unsalvageable or unworkable hmm. for, for a long time. And uh, he has read your book too now. Oh, really? And 
And when we talk, we explore the myths together. We, we talk about dynamics that are happening. And, and that's what I mean. This, the, to, the, there's such a healing practice here oh, nice. um, that can help families, can help marriages, that can help yeah. relationships and help better relationship to yourself. I, um, I, and I, I want to also say I was very skeptical. I, you know, I, it was almost too easy the way it seemed written at first with these myths, these five myths, you just have to memorize them and start to identify them. Part of me wanted something more sophisticated. Part of me wanted something more nuanced in a way. And it's all there. The, the sophistication nuance is there, but it's, it's distilled in a very practical way and, Good. and, and hats off and, and deep credit to you. So thank, thank you. you. I was going to say this one thing about shame. So this guy had a temper. He was drinking too much. They worked on the marriage for over a year, but the damage was too big at this point in time. And, and she had her part. She had her 50%. She was good at what she did. And out of the blue one day, he told me he was sexually abused as a child. And certainly all of that was affecting him in this relationship and his desperate need for her approval. So I said, so here's your homework. Um, if you know from the book on, on shame, you have to go and ask three guy friends. You have to ask three guy friends. Now that you know this about me, that I was sexually abused, blah, blah, blah. Do, do you think less of me? Because the little boy in him, of course, thinks less of him. And then the second question is, um, do you still like me? And the third question is, do you think I'm bad? And I have to go tell three friends, put your big boy pants on, go, oh, I can't do Yeah, you can. I'll get out there and do that. And I want to see that before I see you next time. And, um, and so he did. And then he did it three times. And then he did it four times. And he did it five times. And he said, I'm different. And I get how I went awry in my marriage. I get it, Nancy. I get it. Um, shame you can heal but you have to speak about it yeah and the funny part that you that you just mentioned this as closing is that i had just literally two hours ago read that section in the chapter and said to myself there's a lot of good stuff in this book i'm not going to be asking these three <laughs> questions literally there's no way <laughs> I know. If I were your therapist, I'd say, get your big boy pants on and go out there and do that. Okay. Uh, because what happens is we judge ourselves so harshly, we assume everybody else will. And to expose that flaw that we think we have, um, we're, we're so afraid people will judge us and reject us and think less of us. I had a woman say, I said, so now you told me this. Now you've got to ask me those three questions. Oh, I know how you're going to answer. I said, that's okay. It's a little girl in you that needs to ask the question. So let her ask the question. Okay. So she asked the first one. And I said, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I, I, I think more of you because it's taken a lot of courage to ask this question. She asked the second question, similar kind of response. The third question, do you think I'm bad? She sobbed. She couldn't ask the question for the longest time. She was so afraid. Not the, not the adult, but that little girl in here was so afraid that I would think she was bad. Yeah. So it's that little person that needs to have a voice. So give him one. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
I'm, I'm, I'm stating it publicly. I will, I will, I am going to show like really focusing on that chapter on shame and I will uh, reach out probably in the new year and, and hope to get you back on and to, to further the conversation. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm glad if it's been helpful, Josh, I'm glad. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, again, I will be reaching out to Nancy to have her back. So if you have any questions or things you want clarified, I know for me, the topic of victimhood and who's, who is entitled to be, to claim victim status, um, that was, that was sort of an unresolved thread for me in this conversation among, among other things. But overall, I just really love this book. I love the directness that Nancy brings to the conversation. And I highly recommend picking up a copy of Everyday Narcissism. There's a link for you in the show notes. You, there's also a link to Nancy's website. Um, and again, if you got any value out of this show or this conversation, please do share, uh, send it off to a friend that might be, that might be in need. Um, and consider leaving a review. Your reviews are golden to us, and we are very grateful for your support. Until next episode, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All my best. Thank you.